Let's attend to God's Word. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanius. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not words, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's holy and inspired word. It contains all that we need for faith and for life. The grass, grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. Thank you. Let's once again pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is contained in the Bible. And may it provide a a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path so that we may understand Your Word. And we ask this in the precious name of Christ our Lord. Amen. In the history of theology, there have been various notions of the sacrament of baptism to either emphasize it too much or too little. Is it to be an infant baptism, and also the ones who profess, or only profession in Christ excluding infants? Is it to be entered early on in your Christian discipleship, or just before you die? Is it only a sign, or is it also a seal? Is it regenerative, or also... uh, Or is it only regenerative if you truly believe? And is it necessary to be dipped or immersed in the waters? Or is it legitimate to just sprinkle the baptized? These and like questions surround baptism. If we are not careful, this breeds division, as you saw in the text last time I preached. The same is true concerning preaching. Some people indicate that preaching is synonymous with teaching. Others believe that it consists of the power to convert lost sinners. Others believe it has a limited place in the life of the church. And some believe that it consists as a central place in the life of the church. In this sermon, I believe that we will observe the truth about baptism and the and the centrality of preaching. This leads to the doctrine of the text. Baptism 
is vital, but preaching of the gospel is central. I'll repeat that. Baptism is vital, but the preaching of the gospel is central. In other words, what I mean is baptism is necessary. There can be no mistake about that. But baptism is secondary to the preaching of the gospel. And so the preaching of the gospel is the central, uh, central task of the church. I would like to discuss in the, the exposition two headings. One, the nature of baptism. And two, the centrality of preaching. This first heading is the nature of baptism. First, we need to ask what baptism is. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 94, says, Baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost doth signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. This is what baptism is. However, we want to ask the following questions of the text, such as, is baptism truly necessary? In these verses, Paul seems to indicate that baptism is unnecessary. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that one... No, that, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And further, in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. We need to broach this subject in a threefold manner. Is it necessary to baptize according to Christ? Is baptism necessary to be saved? And third, is it necessary to, dot, to identify the baptizer? First, is it necessary to Christ? This verse seems to be contrary to the instructions of Christ. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It seems that Paul is contradicting the authority of Christ, that Paul should be baptizing all the nations. Paul, after all, claims to be an apostle. 1 Corinthians 1.1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. An apostle is just an ambassador of Christ and for Christ. We believe that all Scripture is inspired and inerrant, so how are, to we, are we to understand this text in the light of Jesus' command to baptize? Perhaps Paul was imitating Christ. John 4 says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. This text can readily, readily be explained if Paul was just following the patterns of Jesus. Paul baptized a very few persons. 
and left further baptizing to Silas and Timothy. Paul preached the gospel and left baptizing to his disciples so that the Corinthians cannot say that they were baptized in the name of Paul because Paul only baptized a few persons. This ensures us that Paul was not contradicting Jesus, but his primary calling was to preach the gospel and not to baptize. Just as Jesus said in Mark 1, 38, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. This is the reason that Jesus came, to preach the gospel. This was and is the central task of the church. Baptism is vital, but the task of preaching is essential. This leads me to the question, is baptism necessary to be saved? The book of Acts gives the impression that it is necessary to be saved. Peter says in Acts 2, 37 and 38, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, Brothers, what shall I do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It sounds like baptism is necessary to be saved and for the forgiveness of sins. However, the Bible says unquestionably in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is indisputable without even the mention of baptism. The confession of Christ as Lord and belief in the resurrection, Paul makes abundantly clear, and so many other texts in the New Testament, that baptism is not necessary to be saved. As the Westminster Confession says in chapter 28, section 5, although it be a great sin to condemn or neglect this ordinance, yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it, or that all that are baptized or are undoubtedly regenerated. So if baptism doesn't save, just what does baptism do? The sacrament of baptism confirms you and assures you that you are really a child of God. As Romans 6 says, do you, know, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. In the waters of baptism, we are so joined to Christ that we are baptized into His death and resurrected to new life in Him. It is necessary to assure us. This leads to the final question. Is it necessary to identify the baptizer? Verse 14 says, I thank God that I baptized none of you 
except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized into my name. But then Paul remembers that he baptized a few more than just those two. He baptized also the household of Stephanius and said, Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul doesn't remember who he baptized. Then why should we be required to identify the baptizer? However, the church has struggled with this throughout its history. In the Donatist controversy, the Donatists believed that you had to be morally, morally pure to rightly administer the sacraments. For example, if the minister had an affair, if you were baptized by him, your baptism was seen as invalid. Therefore, you must identify your baptizer, baptizer to see whether you were baptized legitimately or not. The Orthodox didn't think this was necessary. And indeed, we also remain unconvinced that the baptizer must be identified. Having answered these three questions, we turn to adult baptism. In verse 14, Paul gives us examples of adult baptisms. Obviously, there is little controversy on adults who have been baptized, supposing that they demonstrate that by a conversion account. No one objects to this. Presbyterians are often chided as if they only believe in the baptism of infants, but that is far from true. We believe in adult baptisms as well. However, this is more controversial to place confidence in the validity of infant baptism. One way that Presbyterians find legitimate to baptize infants is by appealing to the household baptisms. Now, we cannot deal with this fully, but only partly. But we must think about the household baptisms. Verse 16 says, I I did baptize the household of Stephanius. This is confirmed by Acts 18.8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Instances of household baptisms are also revealed in Acts 16.15, which says that Lydia was baptized and her whole household as well. And the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.30 and following says that he and his household were baptized. The word of God expresses that household baptisms were prominent in the early church. Maybe there were infants and maybe there weren't. That doesn't really matter. But this confirms an Old Testament principle from many texts of Scripture that circumcision was practiced in households. A primary example of this is Genesis 17. Would you turn with me to to Genesis 17? Genesis 
Genesis 17, starting in verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is circumcised, eight days old among you, shall be circumcised. He he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, and every, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. <clears throat> this confirms the Old Testament principle of household circumcisions. Abraham circumcised all that was in his house, including eight-day-old infants born in his house, or else they could be cut off from God's covenant people. But you might say that was circumcision, not baptism. And you would be right to point that out. Yet as a church, we believe that baptism has replaced circumcision as the Lord's Supper replaced the Passover meal in the New Testament. And we believe that those point to the same spiritual realities. In baptism, like circumcision, you are cleansed of your filth. And by the Passover meal, the blameless lamb is pointed to. And in the Lord's Supper, it is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. To establish this, we appeal to Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of Christ made without hands? Colossians 2 continues. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, etc. Baptism in the New Testament is what circumcision was in the Old. So we find it valid to baptize in the New Covenant as circumcision was applied to infants in the Old. But that is just a peripheral treatment. If you would like to explore that further, you can ask me when you get to the back, and I will give you further references. It is good to preach on baptism once in a while, but realize that it can be a source of division. As Paul said in chastisement in verse 13, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Obviously rebuking the Corinthians for their sinful divisions. If you make infant baptism a term term of communion with the church, you may be guilty of sedition or schism. 
we find the household baptisms le- legitimate to the baptisms of in- to the baptism of infants. But if you can't wholeheartedly embrace the doctrine of infant baptism, that is not required for membership in this church. It is required for officers of the church, but it is not required for church membership. If you just can't embrace the doctrine of infant baptism, it would be an absence of faith. And as Romans 14.23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Needless to say, it is necessary to have been baptized. But this is secondary to the proclamation of the gospel. To that we turn. The centrality of preaching. Verse 17 says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This leads us to ask, what is the preaching of the gospel? Romans 1 says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scripture, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. The centrality of preaching the Gospel is contained in this message. The preaching of God's Son in His human and divine nature predicted from antiquity and fulfilled in Jesus Christ who suffered and died and rose again by the aid of the Holy Spirit. That is the central message that the church has been called to proclaim. However, this also includes the law, as is further described in Romans 1, to bring about the obedience of faith for, to, for the sake of His name among the nations including you who were called to belong to Christ. The obedience of faith, or that could be rendered faithful obedience. You must obey the law as evidence of your response of faith. In sum, faith and duty. But that leads us also to the manner of preaching. Verse 17b reads, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Other translations render uh, not in eloquent wisdom or wisdom of words, or as the New American Standard says, cleverness of speech. He also speaks of this in chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, or wisdom. He made a conscious decision not to come with words of eloquent wisdom or wisdom of words or cleverness of speech or loftiness of speech. He intentionally does not proclaim the gospel with any of these things. He is fearful 
that the Corinthians might, uh, might lose sight of what is really important. Not worldly wisdom, not wisdom in the eyes of the world, but the power of preaching. Verse 17 says, Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The cross of Christ is essential for the preaching of the Gospel. If you have no cross, you have no Christianity. A crossless Christ is an imposter. But with preaching, the Christ is wisdom. But with preaching, the cross of Christ is wisdom in the sight of God, although it is folly in the eyes of man. But for those of us who are being saved, verse 18 says, it is the power of God. This is, a summa- this is a summation of all the things we've talked about today, as one of the reformers said. The administration of the sacraments and the preaching of the gospel must not be, uh, must not be separated. To be sure, the sacraments are a seal of the promise, but the greatest priority must be given to the preaching and exposition of the word. For without preaching of the word, the sacraments are worthless performances, void of all truth. And two, it involves far more effort and work to teach people concerning God and the blessings of the mediator than to administer the sacraments. That sums it up nicely. Therefore, having the Word of God preached to you this morning, this now moves us to the applications. I just have two applications for you this morning. The first is a question. Do you believe in the centrality of preaching? Do you believe in the centrality of preaching? We have seen what Paul said. However, do you truly believe this to be the case? The reading of the Word, but especially the preaching of the Word, is an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. As Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones said in his book, Preaching and Preachers, I have been 42 years in the ministry. And the main part of my work has been preaching. Not exclusively, but the main part of it has been preaching. And ultimately, my reason for being very ready to give these lectures is that to me, the work of preaching is the highest and greatest and most glorious calling to which anyone can ever be called. If you want something in addition to that, I would say without hesitation that the most urgent need in Christ's church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. True preaching is the most pressing need of the church, but also of the world. When I was preparing for brain surgery, I asked the doctor, if all goes well, when do you think I'll be able to preach again? 
when I got to Houston, I asked the doctors and the speech pathologists, when do you think I can be able to preach again? And when I got to the local doctor, I asked, when do you think that I can preach again? And every step, I asked, but I was really asking God, when can I preach again? Not when can I baptize again. That's secondary to the preaching of the Gospel. Because I truly believe what Lloyd-Jones said. It is the greatest calling. And I would further add the greatest responsibility that can be offered to a man. If he had taken away my voice, I wouldn't ask God. But I wholeheartedly believe that true preaching of the Gospel is what the church needs more than anything else. And also, it is the greatest need of the world. The final application is an exhortation as we arrive at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. I encourage you to take the Lord's Supper in order to confirm your baptism. The Westminster Larger Catechism says in question 167, the need, the needful, but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to to be performed of us all our life long. In taking the supper, you improve your baptism by your holy reverence and attention to wait upon the Lord and heedfully discerning the Lord's body and affectionately meditating on His death and sufferings and stir up yourself to judge yourself and your sorrow for sin in hungering and thirsting after Christ, feeding on Him by faith, trusting in His merits, rejoicing in His love, and in thanksgiving for His grace, in renewing of the covenant with God and love to all the saints. If you do these things in the Lord's Supper, you improve your baptism. You show that you were not baptized in vain. Let us pray. Dear Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to You in thanks that You have given us this Word by which we live by. We thank You for giving us baptism. It is truly necessary to be a sign and a seal of our engrafting into Christ, but we acknowledge that it is secondary to the preaching of the Gospel. We ask that we would be faithful in this church to preach the gospel as ambassadors of Christ, acknowledging that Jesus came also to preach, and it is the central task of this church. We also pray that you, O Lord, will set apart these elements of the Lord's Supper to provide a blessing to the worthy partaker. The worthy partaker is an an anomalous word because the worthy partaker is just a sinner saved by grace that pleads 
for more faith. As it is written, I believe, help my unbelief. That is what we appeal to in the coming to the table. Help my unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.